Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to Good Job, where we interview inspiring people from the music industry. We follow their journey from their very worst job to present day and find out what makes them them. You try, my patience. That roar was from Olivier and Tony-nominated actor Ramin Karimlu. Best known for the title role of Phantom of the Opera, Ramin set out as a teenager to achieve his dream of playing this role and landed not only the job of Phantom, but a place as one of the most highly regarded actors on the West End. I had no idea how hard that would be. I had no idea about the competition. We lived in a small town. Nobody else wanted to be the Phantom, so I was the guy who was going to be Phantom. My buddy Dan was going to be the lawyer. Lo and behold, he's a lawyer. You know, we all had our, whatever we chose, that's what we were going to do. But I didn't think about training, I just started singing. So I was the guy who sang. In this episode, we follow Ramin's fateful story from fleeing war in Iran, teaching himself to act whilst working on a cruise ship, to being nominated for an Olivier, as well as chat about how he keeps his career fresh and continues to learn and grow. We start the podcast the same way for everyone. What was your very worst job? I always wanted to work. And I remember I was early teens just to make some money because we didn't have much. Um, Selling flowers door to door. I remember it was cold and he just gave me a bucket full of roses and I was that guy knocking on doors. And I I remember thinking, what am I doing? It was dark and cold. I worked for hours and maybe got like 11 bucks. (laughs) How'd you get a job as a flower seller? The sort of 13-year-old in me was always worried about being poor and not providing, knowing how things can change in an instant, uh, economically speaking. So you must have just moved to Canada then? So I was born in Iran, and then during the revolution, we escaped to Italy. But I was probably months three, four months old when we got to Italy. And then I was there till two, just over two years. And then we took refuge in Canada. Can you talk at all about your family and the revolution? I I don't know much about it at all. Yeah, well, I'm learning about it more than ever. As an adult, I didn't realize what my father went through, what my mother went through. And um, just, I, I don't know if out of respect to them, whether they want me to talk about it right now. But I do remember thinking, how is this not a film? And, you know, my dad was part of the Shah's Imperial Guard. So it wasn't a great time. And had we not got out, we most certainly would have been killed. And at the same time, I think me and a lot of Iranians share the same story who left at that time. Yeah, but I'm halfway through the story. I've just sort of been hearing about it more and more. And I was like, what? You you take for granted because going back to the flower selling and me having fear of 
failure or fear of economic stability. My dad was a very hard worker and I had a very good childhood. When I say childhood, by every sense of the word, I played and I had good friends and we we were always out playing road hockey and things like that. So I had no worries as far as that went. So I took our family history and our escape from Iran for granted. And I don't know why I never took much interest in it, but I, I was never exposed to it. And it's only now that I'm like, so how do we get out? Fake passports? What are you talking about? It's crazy. It's like, it was a film. It's not necessarily a nice story either. You know, a lot of people died. A lot of people were being killed. So it wasn't one of those, oh, let's pull up a whiskey and tell me this amazing story. It's bit by bit. I know I could ask. And especially if I think for my father, the things he went through and saw is probably something he doesn't really fancy bringing up too often. So then you moved through Italy and then to Canada. And as you said, you had a lovely childhood there. How did your journey in music and theatre start? Well, music started with records around the house. And it was an eclectic group of records because my brother at that point, and so was I, we were into heavy metal. We loved that sort of music. You know, we had um, Iron Maiden records. And we listened to old school Public Enemy. But at the same time, my dad had Kenny Roger records and I would hear the Tragically Hip and Tracy Chapman, Joe Cocker, Ray Charles. And what I loved about all those people I listened to, whether it was from, you know, hard rock, heavy metal to country to folk, all those voices were unique. They all had stories and history to the sound. So I wasn't listening to people singing. I was listening to people tell the story. And even like Public Enemy with what they would uh, rap about, like there was a purpose. They had something to say. So there was an energy behind that, which I love to this day. So that's opened my ears and heart to music, especially different, like Gordon Downey, my hero who's passed away now from the Tragically Hip. There's, there was a cry in his voice. Same with Tracy Chapman, you know, and Johnny Cash, like, so much history and in, in, in the vibrations of his voice, you know, he's not singing because he, I think, thinks he's a singer. He's singing because he has, he's a poet. He has something to say. I remember at, as around that time, I would daydream about performing, about being like one of them because I thought they were cool, you know, and I would find my mind wandering. Even things like, I wonder if I played guitar and I was on stage, how would I perform the song? Not that I was thinking of being a performer, but that was my daydreaming. And then a school trip, reluctantly, the only reason I signed up for it and paid the fee to go was a day off school. And from a small town in Peterborough to go to the big city Toronto for the day on a school bus. Yeah, let's do it. And it was to see Phantom of the Opera. That was an extraordinary experience because they, it was on Wednesday matinees. You'd get there a few hours before the matinee, before your lunch. And they did like... um a phantom educational program. So they would get all the schools there and they would talk about theater, talk about the show, talk about costumes, the sound, to to educate folks on the arts and how a theater production goes. And they randomly pick three volunteers and there I get on stage, they pick me. Oddly, I feel like I'm more introverted now than ever, but then I just wanted to be the class clown, to pull attention. What better way to get everyone's attention than to be on the stage at the Pantages Theatre? And my 
what they were using me for was to show how the sound, the Phantom's voice goes around the theater. And I remember the guy saying, okay, Raman, they would call me Raman, into the mic, say, I hear the Phantom of the Opera. So I had to do that. And this is me, how old? I must have been like in early teens, like well, maybe 12, 13 or 14, around that time. And as I did that into the mic, they would throw the voice around like you, like you get in the Phantom show. Looking back now, what a seed to be planted. Do you believe in fate or do you think it is because of hard work that you have got to where you are and you have done the amazing jobs that you've done? Yeah, that's a good question because I, I don't know what I believe anymore, but I know my, my thing is hard work above all. So yeah, but I also know that anytime I make plans, whatever else is driving us, whether it's fate, whether it's if you're religion, you believe in that, whether you're, even if you're atheist, I still think, I don't know if necessarily we're completely in control. So every time I make plans, the, whoever is in control or fate or the universe goes, ah, that's cute. You're actually going to do this. So that's why most I try now whenever I don't get a gig, I'm like, that's not the one for me. But I, for me specifically, because, you know, I'm not the smartest guy. I'm certainly not trained. I have to work a little harder just to be on par with everyone. And then... I always think, how can I even be better? But it's me against me. So it's how can I be better than yesterday? So the long-winded answer to your wonderful question is, I guess I'm going to have to say hard work because that's all I know. Well, that's really interesting because you basically taught yourself to begin with, didn't you? Tell us a bit about your learning journey. It all starts with after seeing that show, The Phantom, and thinking, I want to do The Phantom. Why can't I do The Phantom? And ignorance is bliss because... I had no idea how hard that would be. I had no idea about the competition. We lived in a small town. Nobody else wanted to be the Phantom. So I was the guy who was going to be Phantom. Fair enough. You know, my buddy Dan was going to be the lawyer. Lo and behold, he's a lawyer. You know, we all had our, whatever we chose, that's what we were going to do. But I didn't think about training. I just started singing. So I was the guy who sang. And I would join a band and I became, because I remember I staged door at the Phantom at that time. And it was calm, obviously, my hero. And that's the reason I really got attracted to that show as well, because I heard the recordings. But when I heard Calm sing, I was like, what is that? That voice just sucked my soul. And then um, I remember I met him at stage door. And I guess for better or for worse, because he was untrained and he was a rock star. I said, so what did you do to become Phantom? He's like, well, I don't know. I was singing in bands and I was like, OK, I'll go join a band because that's what he did. I, I was a copycat in a lot. I still would be. I'll copy anything till you find your own way. So I joined bands and I, I started singing in a tragically hip tribute band because that was my favorite band. But here's the thing. No one ever said I couldn't sing. And I never thought I'm a good singer. I didn't care about that. I wanted to perform. So being in the tragically hip tribute band, my goal wasn't necessarily to sound good. or I didn't realize I had a big range or I was hitting what notes. None of that mattered to me. What mattered was, do people think they're listening to Gordon Downey, his mannerisms? It was an acting gig for me without knowing it was an acting gig. And then I remember getting compliments like, man, your face almost morphs into Gordy. You have his moves. So in my head, oh, I'm doing the, the right job. And that's an acting. And at that point, I was really in, watching a lot of the Scorsese uh, era, like De Niro, Pacino, Brando, and all the method actors. So in my head, I'm like, oh, maybe 
that relates because you're morphing, you're becoming that person. And then I auditioned for a cruise ship, ended up getting it. And that's where I learned about music theater very fast. Because I had to dance and I had no idea how to dance. And I remember once in rehearsals, they're like, okay, Romain and Kevin, you guys do a double pirouette. And I was like, what's a double pirouette? He's like, just turn twice. I said, okay, let's go. <laughs> um, I thought, okay, so now what do we do? I'm on a cruise ship, I'm making money. What would De Niro do? What does Pacino and them do? How am I going to... Because for me, being the Phantom was the method acting role because what a transformation. So I remember on, on when you're on deck during the days, I, had, I would take on books with me. Lee Strasberg's teachings, Uta Hagen, Meisner, anything on acting, anything that... Interviews I would read with Pacino or De Niro or actors I really looked up to, Hanks, who... Hanks is like the North Star, especially as a man in this industry. And that was my training where I thought, okay, I didn't go to school for this. No one's going to hand me this. So how am I going to do it? How am I going to better myself? How am I going to learn? You know, and I'm not saying that is the right way. I think there's many different roads. And if you have institutions to go to that won't sink you financially in the long run, take it because the resources are amazing. You've been super resourceful. It sounds like you're a pretty resourceful human. That's the way I was taught, though. You know, my dad and my mom, they were grafters. They worked hard. They never took any handouts. Um, they never waited for things to come to them. They sought it out. And my dad implemented a hardworking ethic into me. And so did my mom. And then so did my teachers. We had I had great teachers. And I'm not saying I had the best grades. Man, I would ditch school to go see Phantom of the Opera, and I'd get detention every time. But they knew. They would say to me, you're a Phantom, weren't you? I said, yeah. You got detention. I said, I know. But in detention, we would talk about Phantom and what I saw. So it's in a way, they were supporting the passion, but you still had consequences for what you did, you know? You just got to be hungry. But I'm still like that. Like when I have new jobs, I'm like, okay, so how can I surprise everyone? I don't want to meet their expectations. How do I exceed them? And um, one of my favorite bands, the Avery Brothers, I remember talking to Seth Averitt when I sang with them on New Year's Eve to dinner two nights prior to that. We were just talking about inspiration and obviously it related to him and his lyric writing. But he said something to me. He goes, Ramin, if you're uninspired, it's your fault. There's inspiration everywhere, whether it's going to a museum, whether it's watching a film or put on a different album or read a book or, you know, if you want it, it's there. And I've learned now that you don't have to be inspired to do something. Just do something. Then the inspiration will come. And once that comes, you'll keep doing it. And then you're in this cycle. There's no perfect time. You just do it. If you want to do something, do it. Let's hear a little bit about your journey into Phantom. So after the cruise ship, what happened then? The best part about cruise ships was meeting Mandy and um, deciding to come to England as she was British. And something just said, go to England. Even before me and Mandy got together, I just knew in my heart that there was something for me there. And I all my goal was, I want to be the guy at the back of the stage. And I'm going to work my way up. But I will do, I know there's that at least for me. And then I'll figure it out. And then when I met Mandy, I thought, well, I want to stay here. I don't want to not be with Mandy. So that was my one thing. Because when it came to the point, do I move back home or stay here? I just couldn't picture my life without her, so I'll stay here. 
and that was an easy decision to make. We got married young and we got married quick. So the one promise I ever made her was, you're never going to go hungry. Again, it's that thing in me where I was like, I never want to not provide. So I went to Pineapple Dance Studio. I just thought I should learn how to dance. I didn't worry about the singing. And not that I thought I was this exceptional singer, but again, no one ever told me I couldn't do it. So, but a lot of people would be able to tell me I couldn't dance. I knew that even without telling them that. So I would take dance classes. And uh, I remember just closing my eyes and taking a number off the board. And I thought, well, I should go learn some theater songs. So I went and sang for this chap. And he was very complimentary and was surprised I didn't have representation. And he goes, come back, my friend's an agent. And I'm always very skeptical. I'm like, oh, yeah, here we go. So next week I go back and I'm singing. In walks his friend who had been listening for the last 15 minutes in the kitchen. He goes, really like your voice. It's so raw. It's different. And he was so kind. And I remember he gave me the best thing an agent, a true agent, could say. He goes, I dig you. I can't guarantee you anything, but I'd be happy to make calls for you because I believe in you. And I was like, perfect, because it's all he can do. The rest is up to me. And we had a great seven-year relationship. And to this day, we're still mates. Obviously, I'm represented with CAM now, who I adore. But there was no hard feelings. And I owe a lot to Michael for his belief in me. And, I, and I'm so glad he's one of our top agents still in the industry because he's one of the good ones. So we started working from there. And then my first job was Regent's Park Open Air Theater. Again, ignorance is bliss. I didn't realize how prestigious that job was. I remember watching the Shakespeare um, Midsummer Night's Dream. And I couldn't take my eyes off this actor. I'm like, look, Mandy, look at that guy. He's just amazing. He's so charismatic and just... Benedict Cumberbatch, you know, before he takes off, he just, I was like, oh my God, seeing him, I remember a few years, I'm like, that's the guy. And um, so from there, I got loads of experience, worked with great people, Ian Talbert, amazing director. And then uh, a lot of things happened quickly. They needed a quick replacement for Sunset Boulevard, another one of my dream roles, boom, into playing Artie Green. And then I had one week to learn Joe Gillis. I was on as Joe Gillis. I've always wanted to play Joe Gillis. Didn't think I'd do it at 22, but let's go. And then, then I got into Les Mis as Ensemble, which was amazing. What a great experience. And to be there with my buddy Hadley, who were mates to this day. And then from there, things started taking off. Then I got into Phantom as Raul. I had a, didn't know how good of a time I was about to have playing that part. And uh, that's a great role. And then got shifted over to play Andres. And then from there, got cast as Chris and Miss Sagon. And so this all within like a two and a half year period, three years. And then I remember we were coming to the end of Miss Sagon. And Cameron McIntosh came into the dressing room just to have a chat. He goes, so what do you want to do? What's going to happen next? What do you want to do? And it's weird. There's a couple points in my life with Cameron where... It wasn't just a conversation. He, something was going on that I didn't know at the time. And I'm I'm not sure if it was, but I feel like for him to ask me that, he had this look in his eye and I'm like, I feel you know the answer. But I feel you're just going to shoot me down. <laughs> and I said, I want to play the Phantom. And he had this look on his face and he just went, aren't you a bit young? I said, yeah, but I have an idea of what I want to do with the part. Just, I had an idea of his backstory and the sort of the way I wanted to present the character. And he laughed, and then he left. <laughs> and that was the end of that. 
Next week, I see this brown envelope under the door, and it's the music to Phantom, and he says, come next week, and we'll work on it. And then we started working on it, and then they put, they put me in as the standby for a year, and me and Earl Carpenter, who I adore, who's a great actor, he went in as a Phantom, and I went in as a standby. That's where it all started, then snowballing from there. And then a, a lot of, whether it's luck, fate, whatever you believe in, for me to take over the part, it happened to be, I was like, well, I was 26 when I first got the part. And then to take over full time, I was 27 or 28. And it happened to be the 21st anniversary of Phantom. So that became a big deal. But then right place at the right time, I'm now the guy who happens to be younger than the norm. So that got a bit of buzz. And then from there, things just started snowballing and Love Never Dies, 25th anniversary of both Les Mis and Phantom and then Broadway. It's amazing how it has been this perfect combination of faithfulness and the work that you've put in. Both of them have just shown up at the right time, or at least you put the hard work in so fate could work for you. Thank you. And I've also been blessed to work with great creatives great cast members that love to play and be great scene partners and I feel I took a real shift with Chris and Miss Sagon and to work with Leo Valdez as the engineer and also John John Briones because they brought their A-game all the time and they accepted your A-game and sort of took the ball they were never what are you doing they loved the change and and to play around with it and, uh, and all my Kims especially with Miss Sagon there's so much heart that that was a heartbreaking experience, but in all the right ways. And then to work with someone like Earl and the Christines we had, and then to go into Love Never Dies. And I remember when the Olivier nomination came in. And again, I was ignorant to all that. I, next thing I knew, I was nominated. And I was like, what, what is this? I never grew up thinking about awards, and I still don't think about it. But I remember thinking... I feel like a fraud. <laughs> Imposter syndrome. So the day I found out I got nominated, I phoned an acting coach, Dee Cannon, who's amazing. And I still follow a lot of her stuff. I said, I need, I want to work with you as an actor. I got six more months left in Phantom. Let's make it the best six months. And let's make it the freshest six months. Because I've just been nominated and I feel like a fraud. So let's, let's reinvigorate the role and not just rest on any laurels. Yeah, well, a lot of people, if they were getting this sort of accolades, that would be them. They'd be like, I'm done. I'm not going to learn anymore. I'm all, I've reached my, my potential. And it's something that I feel it's really important. The learning never ends. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people do think that way. Because at the end of the day, what does it even mean? It, it doesn't guarantee you more work. And it's just a group of opinions. And it's great, you know, but w what does it actually mean? Having a statue, which I didn't get, you know, it's not going to pay the bills. It's not going to audition me for the next part. For me, that's all stuff for agents and PR people to have at, you know. For me, I was just like, okay, well, that's just more pressure than <laughs> the next audience. Because now you're laced with Laurence Olivier or Tony nominated actors. Like, oh, well, what does that mean? Are people going to like more of a microscope now? My work is, I'm still working to be better than yesterday. And that's all I could do. Ah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. So, the quick fire round. Tea or coffee? Tea. Music or lyrics? Lyrics. Cats or dogs? That's not fair. <laughs> dogs. Creativity or logic? Creativity. Plane or train? Plane. Beer or wine? Wine. Sweet treats or savoury snacks? Sweet treats. Matching or odd socks? Matching. Guitar or piano? Guitar. Friday night in or Friday night out? Friday night in. Modern or vintage? Vintage. Black and white or technicolour? Black and white. Moose or mouse? Moose. Yeah, you have to. You're, you've been in Canada for so long. I'm the moose. You are the moose. This is the part where I give you a fun fact about our guest. Now, as we know, Ramin played Phantom in Phantom of the Opera, and most of us know that because of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. However, it did not start off as a musical. It was actually based on the 1910 French novel by the same name by Gaston Leroux. Its plot revolves around a beautiful soprano, Christine Day, who becomes the obsession of a mysterious, disfigured musical genius living in a labyrinth beneath the Paris Opera House. When Phantom debuted on the West End, people used to queue around the block and even sleep in front of the theatre to get tickets. Unsurprisingly, Phantom became the most financially successful entertainment event until 2014 when The Lion King took it over. It was so successful that the first tour of Phantom of the Opera lasted 20 years. Interestingly, in the first performances of Phantom of the Opera in Andrew Lloyd Webber's home, the mask covered the entire Phantom's face and this caused a bit of a problem as his voice was muffled. No good for a musical. When it was time to put it out to the public, Maria Bjornsson designed that iconic half-mask and the unmasking scene was added to the show. You've worked with so many great actors and different people from throughout the industry to you what do you think is success and do you think that there is anything that links successful people it's funny I was thinking about that today I don't know why I was thinking about that like what defines success and I think that's different for everyone what's successful to me now is a different answer than 20 or 25 year old Ramin success at my career now my first goal is to make sure my my wife and my kids are taken care of. There's a success in that, at least as far as I'm concerned. Creatively, for me, success is diversity. And I feel like I'm accomplishing that, which makes me happy and makes me even hungrier because you get a taste of something. 
okay, well then how can I prove that? How can I prove my own camera work? How can I prove my own stage work? And now that I've been improving my own camera work, I get hungry for the stage because I'm like, oh, I've learned this, these new tools. I want to go play over here now. I, I just want to work with people who are equally hungry to be creatively better than how they started the project. You talked about how you don't always see yourself as a singer or as uh, at least a trained singer. But what to you makes a great singer? For me, I turn off when I hear the singer listening to themselves. I used to do that. And there's times where even I'll catch myself out because how can you not six to eight show a week, long run, because you have your dips and dies health-wise and you feel good and you think, oh, my voice is on form tonight. The mo- but I've, I always find the moment I do that and think that, I'm not thinking about the story. I'm not thinking about the lyric. And then I know I notice that from an audience's point of view. So the moment I start thinking that, I try and reset, go back to the words. Because... I don't care if you crack. I don't care if you hit the bum note. I'm not looking for CD quality every night. That's not what we're watching. Now, if you had an opera recital, even if you're just there to sing a song in a concert, I want to hear the story. I want to hear your heart come out. Otherwise, what am I listening to? It's just a sound. And I don't care if it's high or... Because that seems to be the thing. Like, did you hear that note? Or you you see YouTube videos about top notes. It's just a, a high sound now. But when I hear a lyric connected to it, now you've taken me somewhere. I was going to say especially in musical theatre, but maybe not in all music, isn't it? I guess people think about the story more in musical theatre, but actually all music has a story that you need to get across. Yes, absolutely. And I do think we all have egos. You need an ego to be an artist, you know. That's part of the parcel. But then if you feed your ego with and I believe nowadays with social media, and that's even the good comments. If you if you seek the good comments, it's not going to serve you. And then you're most likely going to find some bad stuff because you sit by the pool, you're going to get wet, right? That's going to crush you because most of us are sensitive artists. So you can have a thousand great comments. You will find that bad one. That's, that's self-harm. So if you're seeking that stuff, that's not going to serve you in any way, compliments or not. Because sometimes the worst thing you can do is compliment me on a specific part of a performance. Because in my head, well, that's gone. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm going to think about when I get to it. Oh, that per- such and such like this moment. Well, it's gone now. So talk to me when the run's done, you know. Look, we all condition it's part of the industry now. Unless you don't log on and don't have a social media, there's a lot of pressure. And eight shows a week and a lot of the rules that are written nowadays shouldn't be done eight times a week. But if you do it, then you have to have grace to know this is my primitive way of thinking because I love mixed martial arts. And fighters, usually by the time they get to the fight, they're rarely ever 100%. They'll still win. They'll still do amazing things. And they're still they're giving 100%. I remember an acting coach said to me in my drama classes in high school, we'd always check in, how do you feel today? And I'd go 60%. He goes... As long as you give me 100% of your 60%, I'm happy. So I'll go out every night with that intention. I'm going to go full tilt. But every night's different. So I stopped worrying about other people's expectations. All I know is what I can do is make sure I show up and give everything I got. And if you're telling the story, they'll come with you. But if you start panicking about your voice, I think a lot of people get caught up and maybe it's a teaching, and this is where maybe ignorance is bliss. But look, 
that's why a lot of people don't like what I do as well. Let's get that out there right now. It's, I mean, that's fine too, but people should give themselves grace and just go tell the story, lean on the lyric. The rest will take care of itself. Have you ever doubted that in yourself? Have you doubted yourself in general? Because you seem like you're very single-minded about your journey. I doubt myself all the time. Mandy talks me down from the imaginary bridge all the time, 100%. But then I think, okay, what's my doubt? What's caused the doubt? Is it in my control? What others think of me is not my business. If it's something that I can improve or fix, and it's usually if I don't get an audition or a part that I'm, I've been very grateful with theater that I don't I have an audition in a long time. I know there's still that that uh, saying that it's out of your control. They wanted a certain thing. But there's still that little part of me that thinks I still didn't do enough for make them. Even if I wasn't what they originally wanted, I could have changed their mind. I had a chance to change their mind. Do you know what I mean? You go into a meeting, you have a chance to change someone's mind. Even if it, the moment you walk in, you're like, no. And then suddenly you do something and be like, oh, wait a minute. So I want to figure out what can I do to make people go, wait a minute. What has been your greatest challenge on your journey? I guess it comes down to that self-doubt and not letting doubt be the driver for so long at times. And like you just said, you know, I've done pretty well and I have. So I guess, you know, when they say, what would you say to younger you? It's going to be all right. Just enjoy what's in front of you. Don't look beyond. And I would, I would do that out of fear again fear of providing for the family. And I had a bad habit of, like I said, I got successful jobs in quick succession. But I mean, right after opening night, okay, so what am I gonna do next after this? How do I, how do I get people excited about the next thing? I'm like, Ramin, you have eight months, nine months, one year left in this contract. Enjoy it, grow with each, each performance. And I would have to keep talking myself into that, but I wish I didn't have so many of those self-coaching moments and just take the pressure off because pressure like that I don't think helps creatively being backed in the corner is one thing but then beating yourself up and psyching yourself out that's not helpful and I, I I probably could have relaxed a lot over the years because how that manifests itself as a husband and father you know you you take your stress out on the ones you love when I look back at half the little bickerings or moments with my kids that break my heart, because I was, you know, as a father, I'm always, I'm, I'm the first to also go, you know what, Jaden, sorry I spoke to you like that. I was stressed about something. I took it out on you. I'm so, as a dad, we all make mistakes too. So we, I look back on some of those moments. A lot of that could have been averted too, but we're human. And uh, as long as we own, own our humanity. Yeah, I mean, that's such um a human thing, isn't it? We all have so much self-doubt and it's uh, such a shame for all of us that we can't just like throw it away a lot of the time and just enjoy the good moments. Yeah, and uh, when you throw it away as an artist too, because when you've done the work and it's in it's in your skin, it's the foundation's there, you've done the rehearsal because that's where all you lay that amazing playground that you know you could then start running and throw it away. It's, it's what, what do they say about technique? You have it all work, you learn, you get all the technique and then forget it because it's there. So I, I certainly will do that from here on in. 
and I feel like I've been over the last few years now where I do the work and then I just see what happens. That's super nice. On the other side then, what has been your greatest accomplishment? It's got to be my boys and, you know, being married almost 20 years through all this. You know, I think that's Mandy's accomplishment as well to stick through it all. But I'm very fortunate that we were going through this horrific time. But I've been able to enjoy the family time. And I know a lot of people aren't in this situation. So I guess I, I have to put a bit of that down to the success, the, the labor that, okay, this could have been a lot worse for us as well. At least I'm with my family. We're healthy. We're happy. We're making do that's successful for me because my work's allowed me this moment. That sounds like success to me, for sure. If you could have one quality or ability that you could just pick up tomorrow, what would it be? Oh, to be able, you know, to play by ear. They, you know, those musicians who can just pick something up and five minutes later to play and I'm like, what just happened? You just heard that. You didn't even know the song. <laughs> My guitar player, Sergio, was like that. He stepped in for a rehearsal. So I was about to go on an American tour. Our guitarist at the time got stuck in customs, so he was delayed like 36 hours. But when we landed, we had to rehearse. So my drummer was talking to my tour manager, Bob, and Bob goes, who are you with? Oh, my buddy Sergio. Does Sergio play guitar? Yeah, he's really good. Can he step in for rehearsal? Yeah. So in comes Sergio. We start with a song that I wrote. I looked at Sergio. I'm like, how did you? What is this? What is happening right now? He goes, oh, man, you know, we just... And to this day, Sergio's one of my best friends. And I remember by the end of that rehearsal, I said, Bob, fix the tour budget. Make sure Sergio gets on that bus tomorrow. So I just met Sergio. And within 24 hours, he was on the tour bus with us going down to Atlanta, Georgia for our first gig. And on the bus, we were rehearsing. But he didn't need it. He knew it. And I thought, that is incredible. Very handy. And stuff like that, I know I've missed out on by not having proper education you know proper training because in when you go to these universities or colleges i would have been playing more you have music more you'd be singing more but i'm doing a lot of that now <laughs> yeah and don't you think that perhaps your your own specific journey has allowed you to be who you are and have the voice that you have if you had a different journey maybe you wouldn't sound the same or maybe you wouldn't be able to connect as well Oh, 100%. And I've always been stubborn from a young age because my only um, foray in art school was, I remember in high school, I was at a regular high school. And then down the road, there was the music theater high school. And I thought, well, maybe I should go there. So I think I did grade nine very soon, maybe grade 10. I thought, I'll go to that school. So I got in. And, you know, it felt like fame. Everyone's singing in the hallway, dancing in the hallway constantly. So you do science and math and then suddenly you do singing and then theater studies. And then for me, I was like, this is too much information. It's not fun because if I'm not having fun, I don't want to do it. I don't want to be an actor if it's not fun. That's why I'm very specific about how I sing and where I sing and who I sing with. I guess it stupidly has to somewhat be on my terms because if I don't want it to be a job. It's got to be fun. It's got to be spiritual and from your heart anyhow i remember on day two so i had at that point two vocal where everyone's in the vocal class and i'd sang a song that they made me sing but i sang it my way it was a, a very old hymn-like song 
And they're like, well, you can't sing it like that. And I remember going, what? What do you mean you can't sing it like that? Well, this is how you should place your sound. And you're almost basically changing my sound. And I was like, I didn't even know how to answer this because I was like, but these are my vocal cords. <laughs> this is the sound I make. So I said, okay. And I remember my next class was chemistry. I raised my hand. I said, can I go, ma'am, can I go to the washroom real quick? She goes, yeah, be quick. I said, okay. I went straight to my locker, emptied it, hopped on a bus, went back to Alexander McKenzie. I said, please, can I come back? They're like, yeah. And I literally, by the time I got back to Alexander McKenzie, they put me on a road. I said, okay, well, you've missed this class. You're halfway through this class. Go to this class and tell them you've, you've come back. You want to do it your way. But also that's what makes your voice yours. Well, my thing was make me the best me. Help me. And maybe some people will be like, well, they were trying to. But I'm like, no, the moment you can't do something, or you, can't, you can't sing like that. I'm, I was like, what? what do you mean you can't? Did anyone say Joe Cocker can't sing You Are So Beautiful like he did, where he can barely get the notes out? But there is no better version. Because his heart comes out on every lyric, on every vocal crack and strain. That's how I want to sound. I don't want to sound vocal perfection. That's not me. And there are singers who do that amazing. But those who have their heart to want to be that perfect sound, well, that's why they're good at it. Because that's their jam. That's not me. I'll be a fake version of that. And I can't do that. For sure. So final question. What is your advice for anyone trying to get into the entertainment industry? I would say do not feed the ego. Stay inspired. And it's up to you. It's up to you. That's great advice. Great. We're done. Thank you. Bye. Big thanks to Ramin. If you'd like to see what Ramin is up to, he's got lots of projects going on at the moment. He's got music. He's got his very own podcast. And of course, you can find out a little bit about the shows he's been in. You can do that at RaminKarimlu.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. It helps us get these episodes out to more people. And if you'd like to support the podcast, please do head over to my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash bethroars. And you also get early access to the podcast episodes, as well as early access to some of my YouTube content. And you get to be part of my YouTube patron-only vote. Once again, big thanks to Ramin, to James and Kazra at One Fine Play for the initial edits, to Tom Court, my fabulous co-producer who's been working super hard on all of these episodes, and to you guys for listening. See you in the next one. Bye! Good job! Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. 
not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.